0: This is a rebroadcast of an Econofact Chats episode with Paul Krugman of the City University of New York from February, 2021. I'm Michael Klein, executive editor of Econofact, a nonpartisan web-based publication of the Fletcher School at Tufts University. At Econofact, we bring key facts An Incisive Analysis to the National Debate on Economic and Social Policies, publishing work from leading economists across the country. You can learn more about us and see our work at www.economfact.org. In the 1990s, the columnist Thomas Friedman said, that when asked what he thought about further globalization, he responded that he thought about it the same way that he thought about the sun rising. It was inevitable. He based this on the idea that the inexorable rise of globalization was a function of technological advances, like better and faster information technology, and advances in transportation and shipping. But globalization is not just a function of technology. It's also determined by politics. And in the last few years, we've seen a political retreat from globalization, not just in the United States, but in other countries as well. Economists tend to favor free trade. In fact, in a poll of top research economists, there is more unanimity about the advantages of free trade in goods and services than on any other subject. This seems at odd with much popular opinion that sees free trade as one of the elements that has contributed to the hollowing out of the middle class. To discuss these issues today, I'm very happy to be speaking with Paul Krugman. Paul is somebody that, as the saying goes, needs no introduction, but I'll provide a short one anyway. Most people know him through his regular columns in the New York Times and his many books, the latest of which is Arguing with Zombies. Economics students may know Paul as a co author with Maury Opsfeld and Mark Mellets of the leading textbook in international economics, or with Robin Wells, the co-author of one of the leading principles of economics books. Economists know that Paul has been a seminal thinker, one who launched a number of research areas in economics and was recognized for this with the Nobel Prize in 2008. Paul, welcome to Econofact Chats. Hi there. Paul, you once said that the great era of globalization was the 90s, but you meant the 1890s, not the 1990s. What does this long perspective tell us about the advances and retreats of globalization? It's actually,
1: I mean, I think the long perspective is really helpful here. It tells you a bunch of things. And one of the things it tells you is that there's nothing inevitable about globalization ever rising. It's actually not a straight line over the long term. You see, there was a huge increase in the Integration of the world economy. The world, to use Tom Friedman's uh, phrase, that the world got a lot flatter between eighteen the eighteen fifties, let's say, and and the beginning of World War One. It got a lot less flat between the wars. It really had, in many ways, only recovered to sort of eve of World War One globalization by nineteen eighty. We had a surge of globalization from the eighties up until. The global financial crisis, and really not much changed since then. So it's not by any means a one-way street here. And if you start to ask why we've had these ups and downs, it's actually it's a mixture of economics and politics. So I mean, I I had actually never heard the quote that you gave from Tom Friedman in at the beginning, which is interesting because actually with all due respect to my new york times colleague he's actually wrong even about the straight economics even leaving the politics aside it's not it's not the case that that advances in technology necessarily mean that that world trade has to rise as a share of the world
0: economy so what economic forces would force greater fragmentation rather than integration well the way i think about it the way i think about
1: most things in economics is to first you know, try to make a little model to clarify my thoughts and then sort of go back and forth between that and the facts. And if you start to think about it, you realize that it's an old line that, that international trade is actually kind of a different form of production. You can produce something for yourself or you can trade to get it from overseas and trade other things to other people in return. And the relative attractiveness of those two options depends on not just on the technology of transportation, but also on the technology of producing things domestically. And at some level, globalization is always a race between the technology of transportation and the technology of production. If technology of transportation advances rapidly, more rapidly than than productivity and the economy at large, then yeah, you're going to see an increase in world trade. But that doesn't have to be the case. And in fact, there's some evidence that between the wars, it wasn't just protectionism that caused global trade to shrink, but it was also the fact that actually the technology of transportation was fairly stagnant. If you think about The way that stuff got shipped internationally in 1950, it wasn't that different from the way it was shipped internationally in 1910. And in the meantime, assembly line production and all that had come along so that in some ways it became more attractive to produce stuff locally, close to markets, and less attractive to ship at long distances. Since then, we've had another bout of technological progress, containerization, all of that. But it's by no means necessarily the case that the technology of transportation is going to lead to a greater share of what the world produces being shipped across borders. It can go either way. If we ask why was there so much globalization, we certainly had a hyper globalization. We had an unprecedented increase in world trade between about 1988 and 2008. That was the result of applying some very specific technologies. It was Freight containerization, first faxes, and then the internet making it possible to coordinate stuff at long distances, maybe a few other things going on as well. Air freight got a lot cheaper. But those are one-time events. There's no reason to think that you're going to see at least that pace of globalization always. And in fact, globalization kind of leveled off after about 2008. We're not a noticeably more integrated world now than we were a dozen years ago. And then, of course, on top of that, there's politics. The international trading system that we have now is the product of a long period of rule-based trade policy, global trade negotiations. The United States is kind of the benevolent hegemon of that system, and that, that era may be over.
0: Well, the globalization that we did see that you mentioned came with a lot of promises of greater prosperity, or at least for some countries or some groups of people. Do you feel that globalization delivered on these promises?
1: Oh, yeah, from a a ruthless cosmopolitan point of view, from the point of view of somebody asking what happened to the world as a whole, globalization really did deliver big time. I mean, look, when I I was a grad student in in the 1970s, and I asked myself, what should I specialize in? And I said, well, what is the most important thing? And the answer was clearly development economics. Nothing was more important than making poor countries less poor. And I didn't do it because it was too depressing. In the 1970s, development economics was a very depressing field. It was basically it was basically non-development economics. It was all about the reasons why poor countries didn't seem to be able to get rich. And then all of that changed. And since then, we've seen, I mean, in terms of, of numbers of people, the rise of China, but then a little bit later, the rise of India. You've seen enormous expansion of the quality of life for literally billions of people. And all of that is clearly closely linked to globalization. All of that, all of these are export oriented success stories. So this is a globalization really has delivered, but not without costs and not without hurting some innocent bystanders. And so there has in fact been significant pressure on at least some workers in advanced countries who have found themselves one way or another in the way of this juggernaut. And so it's not an unambiguous good. It's an ambiguous good from the point of view of the average or the random human being on the planet. Globalization has been a wonderful thing, but that doesn't you know, tell that to the, uh, to the furniture workers of North Carolina. It just has not been true for everybody.
0: So trade theorists have recognized this for a long time. Even David Ricardo in the early 19th century talked about the winners and losers from trade. Do you think what you were citing just now, for maybe not the furniture worker in North Carolina, but workers who are saying that they're hurt by trade, is it in fact mostly trade with, say, lower income countries? Or are there other reasons that are just as important or even more important, like job replacing technology or the decline of unionization? Oh, I would say if you had to give a a rank ordering I mean, clearly,
1: this has been a a rough time the past 30 years, no, 40 years now. For 40 years now, we've really been seeing uh, pressure on working, uh, on ordinary workers. If you ask what are the sources of that pressure, I would actually, in order, say politics with the weakening of unions is probably the biggest, most important thing. And technology is probably second. And globalization is probably a somewhat distant third. So it's not the case that this is all a story about globalization, not not by a long shot. But you can you can say that, and at the same time admit that globalization has had its downsides, and particularly there were some things. I've been written a couple of mea culpas. There are a few things that even those of us who were from the beginning willing to admit that there were going to be some negatives, we missed some important sources of strain.
0: So as I mentioned in the introduction, you pioneered research in a number of areas of economics, and one of these was the re-examination of trade policy. Some of your research at that point talked about the way in which well-constructed strategic trade policy could be beneficial, and that challenged the orthodoxy at the time. But then you also published an article entitled, Is Free Trade Passé?, and in that article the answer you gave was no. The previous administration certainly made tariffs a centerpiece of its policies. Did this give tariffs an undeserved bad rap, or is a bad rap deserved?
1: Well, okay. I think that the case for tariffs is really pretty weak, and the reason it's weak is not that markets are perfect and that free trade is always ideal, but that it's really. And this is a this is a point we've. We've argued for a long time in in economics, really going back to the to the '60s, that if you try to make arguments about why a tariff might be a good thing, those arguments may be valid, but they're almost always better arguments for something else. So, if you're saying that an industry is generates technological spillovers, and clearly some industries do. The, uh, it would be foolish to, to say that that isn't the case. That, but if an industry generates favorable technological spillovers to the rest of the economy, that's a case for subsidizing the industry, or maybe for subsidizing the technology development within the industry. And a tariff is a crude, blunt instrument for achieving that. And if you want to say, well, I want a tariff because I think that it's important for us to produce choose your technology, electric vehicles, then you should say, well, okay, why not just subsidize electric vehicles? And if you say, well, but that's too expensive, then you're actually doing bad economics because the tariff is actually more expensive. It's just that the costs are hidden because most of them are passed on to consumers. So it's not really, the case for tariffs is not particularly strong, but the case for industrial policy, I have to say, is looking, we're we're a much more technology driven, or economy, at least in some obvious ways than we used to be. And I think the case for caring about what we produce is stronger than it it seemed to be 20, 30 years ago.
0: Well, this is sort of a centerpiece of the Biden administration's build back better industrial policy. So would you favor the kinds of things that the new administration is pushing for?
1: Well, it depends on, I mean, it needs to be done. First of all, it is important to be for this stuff to be smart. And in a way, if the Trump administration did interventionist policy uh, no favor because what it pursued was dumb interventionist policy. They just had no you know, no no organizing principle that that anyone could recognize uh, that decided what they were going to favor, and they had this vision probably of just trying to restore a sort of. Economy that made lots of heavy stuff with brawny blue collar workers producing we're, it. we wearing
0: red hats, right? Wearing red
1: hats, definitely. Uh, 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 maybe hard hats over their red hats, or maybe the other way around. But the but you know, and that's that's not going to happen. Right? They that's not that's not the way the world is going. But uh, you can't make the case that government promotion of green energy has been a really good thing, and that's a case I would definitely make. I would say that, that there's a were it as it turns out huge spillovers from the the investments in in renewable energy that took place you know, ten years ago. You can't make that case without admitting that there could be other things as well. So if you can judiciously identify places where you think that having industry invest in R D and maybe learning through production is favorable to the economy, then then you have to To say that that's an acceptable thing now, in a way, the fact that this is all embedded in a global economy makes it even more important to be really careful in doing this because there are there need to be some rules of the game. If we want to complain about China targeting technological industries, we can't then say and our policy is to completely without restraint target industries that we think have valuable technologies. Otherwise, it's just a it's just a a war that fragments the world economy, but, but the idea that there are industries, technolo- certainly technologies that deserve some public promotion. Sure.
0: So part of the, the hit against tariffs and maybe industrial policies more broadly is that it's inherently political and in an environment with a lot of lobbying, it's not clear that technocrats will get to decide what gets promoted the great international economist Rudy Dornbusch told the story that when he was advocating for NAFTA explaining its benefits, he would have a representative from Congress say, well, that all might be true professor, but there are 20 jobs in my district that are going to be lost as a consequence of that. And of course there's a lot of money in lobbying and with trade, there's the standard problem of concentrated costs and diffuse benefits. So given these things, given the political reality, how would you then talk about the advantages in the face of these kinds of headwinds? Do you think that it's possible to have rational, good industrial and trade policy when we have the reality of lobbying and concentrated costs and diffuse benefits?:
1: Well, it's, it, these aren't real questions of institutional design. We don't want to give up on international trade agreements. We created this whole system. Actually, we, I mean, you know, but basically the United States created it, although now it's got other sustaining players. We created the system of rules governing not just tariffs and import quotas and, and, and all of that, but also industrial policies that can be seen as de facto protectionism. And the reason we set up these rules is not actually so much to protect us from foreigners as to protect us from ourselves. We set up a a quasi-judicial procedure. And if we're going to do more intervention, it has got to be set up in a constrained way with institutions that have some independence. So I I think we're not quite at this point. But if, if if we're going to do something like a Green New Deal, or I guess we're going to call it something different now, if we're going to do a Build Back Better, and it's going to include money for promotion of technologies, that money has to be at least somewhat protected from detailed political influence. It has to be something like empowering a quasi-independent panel to make decisions, because otherwise, yeah, you're going to find that Congressman Baumfog is going to decide that the sausage factory in his district is somehow a high-technology sector that deserves a a billion dollars of funds. So it's tricky. This is why a wholesale embrace of industrial policy is probably not something we want to do. We want to do it much more cautiously. And it's also a reason why, in the end, it's it's never going to be a fundamental transforming thing. But you look at... I, I, I have to say... the. The experience of the energy miracle of the past 15 years, the way that renewable energy went from being hippy-dippy stuff that nobody took seriously to actually clearly outcompeting fossil fuels in in many ways, uh, with thanks largely to early government promotion, that has certainly shifted my views towards saying, okay, it's worth incurring some risk of political malfeasance in order to not pass up on the opportunities here.
0: Another area that you launched, Paul, was the economics of geography. Yeah. And an important part of that was agglomeration, the way that industries would cluster. And I guess the opposite of that would be the fact that we see these areas in the country that are just being decimated. So do you have ideas about what we can do for places that are left behind, policies not just linked to industries, but to places as well? Yeah. So that is actually, yeah, that is a really hard problem. I mean, it's, it's a, one of those
1: funny things. When I when I started writing about geography, which was circa 1990, a lot of it had a kind of a retro, uh, even a steampunk feel, because you were a lot of the, the golden age of, of industrial localization seemed to be well in the past was was something that you associated with the with the nineteenth and early twentieth century economy. If you drive into New York uh, on the approach to the to the Lincoln Tunnel, there's actually a sign that says uh, "Welcome to North New Jersey, Embroidery Capital of the World since 1872." Does that still hold? <laughs> it, I doubt it. I doubt that there's any embroidery at all going on in New Jersey at this point. So it was all you know. We'd like to talk about that the 1910 census and its memorandum on localized industries. And we, we seem to be leveling out. And then just about at the time, we said, okay, let's look at the past. It turned out to be the future. And we're seeing this divergence again with big, highly educated metropolitan areas pulling away and leaving a lot of places stranded. And that is a problem because no particular reason to feel nostalgic about acreage, but the fact of the matter is that there are communities, there are people, not everybody can move, or there's something lost if they do move. But what do you do? History is not favorable here. Uh, even countries that spend a lot of money trying to bolster lagging regions have generally not been very successful. It, it Nobody really knows how much money Italy has spent on trying to develop the messagiorno, and it still remains very backward. Germany has spent an enormous amount of money trying to lift the, the former East Germany, and basically it's not working. And, uh, and people are leaving, and the people who are left behind are bitter and have become a, a real threat to d- democratic values. And uh, in fact, the United States de facto provides an awful lot of aid to lagging regions. If you look at the de facto net transfers to Kentucky, they're about 20% of the state's GDP through the federal tax and transfer system. And yet, you know, people are not are not relocating offices from Manhattan to Owsley County. So this is really hard. There, there are some things you can do. There are certainly some governmental functions that are don't have to be major metropolitan centers. There are certainly some kinds of money that can be used to promote technology. But I have to say, even though I the problem is real, the solution is not obvious. What can I say? I think you know, businesses and people kinda want to be in metropolitan areas with at least half a million people, probably more. And it's very hard to to do much to sustain places that are small-town, rural. There are deep reasons why they're not the cutting edge of the economy, and I don't know that we can do more than mitigate the effects.
0: So I'd like to close, Paul, with a discussion of your role as an influential columnist and author in the public square. Back in the 1990s when you began writing in the popular press, I used your articles to show my students how to make sophisticated economic arguments in an accessible way. And of course, at Aconafact, this is one of our goals. I also use one of your quotes when I conclude my classes, that when the world presents us with a genuinely new problem, guesswork is all we have to go on, and those who discipline their guesses with models are more reliable than those who fly by the seat of their pants, no matter how well-tailored. How do you present, in an accessible way to such a broad audience, the importance of disciplining guesses with models? That is... The role of economic frameworks in public policy?
1: Well, in an 800-word column, you are not going to be able to explain a model. I think the main point is to, first of all, to be sure that you yourself have one. That when I'm writing, I may not use jargon, I certainly if, if I were to include a single equation in my regular Times column, I think I would be fired on the spot. But I always have, when I'm writing about something economic, I always have, in fact, a model hidden in the background. The process of modeling that I've done all my professional career is largely one about observing the world, trying to tell a story, formalizing that story altering it, you know, as it interacts with in your mind with, with what you, you see about the facts. And then in the end, translating that story back into something that's pretty much plain language. And when you're writing for the public, you want to do all of that, but then just give the plain language at the end. And if you do it right, then you are actually... Conveying something that's a much clearer insight than someone who's just bloviating. I'm perfectly well aware that if you read what Marshall had to say about the role of mathematics in economics, he actually said to do exactly that, except he said burn the mathematics after you're done, which is not a good idea. You actually want, you know, your other your colleagues, your students should see how it's done. But most things in economics, if if you can't find a way to express the insight in plain language at the end it's probably not a very clear insight and so I, I don't think there's a problem of course the special issue is that you have to realize that your audience is smart people but busy people who are not eager to spend a lot of time going back to school so it a lot of it, it really is a question of translation and uh, but I, I think it works I mean I, I do think that I'm not now there are a lot of people doing what I what I do which is to try and convey, good serious economic analysis but without making it feel like they're uh, like they're in a classroom and I, I think it works I think people do appreciate it
0: yeah well that's what we try to do at a counterfact of course as well yeah and the elegance of the models that you've developed you know just on a personal level a lot of my research was like following you picking up the crumbs and extending it a little bit and it got me tenure in full professorship so thanks very much for that. So, yeah. Paul, thank you very much for speaking with me today. It was really a pleasure to talk with you. Good to be born, and let's, let's look forward. Ever forward. Yeah, Thanks a lot. This has been Accountifact Chats. To learn more about Accountifact and to see the work on our site, you can log into www.accountafact.org. You can subscribe on our site to our newsletter that will let you know when we publish new memos and new podcast episodes. Please feel free to share this podcast and our memos with friends, colleagues, and on social media. Aconifact is a publication of the Fletcher School at Tufts University. Thanks for listening.